Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin from EPAM Continuum. Over the years, we've heard about the impact and potential of innovation upon various facets of our lives, from doctors, professors, museum curators, futurists, authors, and many others. Well, today, we're adding bakers to that list. Well, one baker, anyway. Those of us in the Boston area are well acquainted with Flower Bakery and Cafe and its chef and owner, Joanne Chang. She's a James Beard Award winner for Outstanding Baker, and over the last 20 years, she's expanded from one bakery location to eight, in addition to running a restaurant, Myers and Chang, with her husband, of course. I think it's also important to note that Joanne's Wikipedia page contains the line, she is known for her sticky buns, which is a station in life I will never achieve and am incredibly envious of. Along the way, Joanne has learned a lot about how to scale and differentiate positive customer experiences. She's changed her tune on offering online and kiosk-based ordering, and she sells cookbooks that tell people how to make the very items that have made her such a success. Joanne shared her thoughts with EPAM Continuum's Buck Sleeper, Director Innovation Consulting and Vertical Lead of Restaurants and Retail, and a frequent flower of Joanne's business. Let's hear what they had to say. All right, Joanne Chang, welcome to the podcast. So uh, many of our listeners will know you um, as a baker, as a restaurateur, as an author. Um, But I was hoping you could take a minute and, uh, in your own words, introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, Well, I am all those things, a baker, a restaurateur, an author. Um, I'm also somebody who cares deeply about uh, people, the environment, uh, how we are living our lives, how we leave how we will leave our life. Um, I think what has led me into uh, growing the bakery and writing books and focusing on the restaurant is I want to try to make people's lives a little bit better, uh, however I can. And those are the ways in which I've found to do that. Awesome. Well, we're going to talk about all those things. Great. Um, Let's start with your latest book, Pastry Love. Um, So what is Pastry love, and and how do you bring it to life? Pastry love is actually a term at the bakery um, that we use to describe the action of making the pastry counter look enticing and bountiful. Uh, It started from when we opened our second location, and I was ping-ponging back and forth between each location. I could no longer hover over just one pastry counter because now we had two. And so whenever I was at one bakery, I would call the other bakery and say, have you given the pastries some love? Um, And that got shortened into, have you done pastry love? And now we just say, have you done pea love? And so the idea of pastry love is really to try to entice people um, when they come into the bakery to uh, order one of everything because we know that if you eat our pastries, you'll be happy. I love that. Um, Certainly, we have mornings here where someone has ordered one of everything <laughs> from the bakery downstairs and brought it Perfect. up to the project room. Um, so, P-Love is about rearranging the case. It began as that. You talk about in your book how you've dedicated an entire page of the training manual yes. to P-Love. Yes. How's that come to life in the bakery? So, P-Love is the action, but it's also meant to uh, describe kind of the feeling that we're trying to give people, which is that pastries and food and warm service, all of these things can really make people happy, can bring them joy. Um, And so pastry love is all about um, connecting with other people and trying to make people's day a little bit better. Okay. And how's that received 
when you're training a new person or how do they, how do they feel about that? Uh, I mean, I think for anybody who works at flower, you have to buy into that or otherwise it just doesn't work out. We, we talk about it so constantly. It's such a big part of who we are. Um, and I think that's one of the things that has led to our success. I learned that in the first year that I think in the very first year of operating flower, I was trying so hard to please everybody, guests, um, staff, uh, basically anybody and everybody. And I started to, realize that in order for flower to be what I wanted it to be, I'd have to be really clear about what the goals were and what our missions were. And then if somebody wasn't happy with that, then it's okay that I haven't made them happy and maybe they shouldn't be with us. And uh, that was a, a, a really important lesson to learn because I felt that if somebody, if I hired somebody and they didn't work out, that it was a failure on my part. And I've since learned that it just means that that person doesn't jive with our philosophy. Mm-hmm. So the people who are part of Flower all buy into what we are trying to do. Everybody pulls together and, and makes Flower what it is. Yes. Um, what is Flower? You talked about philosophy and, and mission. Um, tell us about Flower. So Flower is a, a bakery cafe. Uh, we have eight locations, soon to be nine in Boston. And it's a place that um, I call it the cheers of bakeries. Um, Of course, now we have a generation of staff who don't always know what Cheers is, but uh, I try to explain to everybody, and our goal is that Flower is a place where people can come, um, and when they leave, they leave happier than when they walked in. And that might be through a smile and a thank you. It might be through an amazing flaky croissant. It might be through a great uh, BLT or uh, just sitting in a busy bakery and watching people, you know, engage with each other. But whatever that way is, Flower is all about trying to make everybody's day a little bit brighter. Okay. You mentioned uh, eight locations growing to nine. Where's, yes. where's the new location? We're going to open um, a ninth location near Mass General on Cambridge Street in the Whole Foods Plaza. Um, we're taking over an Obon Pan that used to be there. Okay. Lots of uh, lucky doctors. Yes. Yes. Um, so we have a flower just downstairs, yes. um, which is dangerous. Um, so so uh, thank you for that. Um, uh, you know, going from uh, one bakery to eight, now yes. to nine, I'm sure if there are more in the works, um, that pastry love starts to get spread a little bit thin. Yeah. How, how does it, um, how's it working with scaling? How do you, how do you make sure that that, uh, that goes, you know, out to the entire network of flowers? That's definitely a big challenge for us every day. I mean, we're fortunate in that we have a really strong management team. Um, My husband and I, uh, we run the bakeries together and between the two of us and then our managers, we're kind of out in the bakeries looking at everything all of the time. Uh, We start with, um, we do a lot of pictures, honestly. That's one of the easiest ways that we've found recently is that um, when, for example, we have a Valentine's Day menu that's coming up and I have training manuals for all of the bakers on how they should make all of the new uh, Valentine's Day pastries. Once we launch the Valentine's Day menu, every pastry chef is required to send us a picture of what it looks like every day until we feel like their team gets it. Um, And so being able to rely on people who all have cameras on their phones has been huge in allowing us to um, strive for consistency. We also take pictures of the entire pastry counter every night from at five o'clock and at seven o'clock, because we've found that towards the afternoon, a lot of times that's when 
um, pastries start to, uh, the P-Love tends to fall apart a little okay. bit. And so we mm-hmm. ask people, we ask the teams to take pictures. Um, and we do uh, tastings every week where we'll take a group of pastries at each bakery and just taste with the pastry teams so that we can ensure that uh, the pastries are consistent with what we want them to be. Okay. I tend to fall apart a little bit in the afternoon too. Um, <laughs> so you mentioned technology uh, in the form of uh, your staff and, and smartphones. Um, one thing I've noticed is more and more screens in yes. restaurants, um, more and more screens in flour. Uh, there are many ways to get a sandwich yes. these days. Um, just downstairs, uh, you can go to the uh, up to the counter and, yep. and talk to one of your team members. Um, you can order on uh, your app, uh, where I'm a frequent flower. Excellent. Um, uh, or you can go to the kiosk in, in the back. Uh, what's happening in, in restaurants? How are you managing all of these channels and, and what's driving this? You know, when we opened our second location, that was when people started ordering things online. And this was back in 2007. And I had friends who were way more tech savvy than me say, I'd love to be able to just order online for flour. And I refused. I said, absolutely not. I want every guest to come in and I want to be able to look you in the eye and say, good morning. And how are you? And I want to tempt you with all the pastries. And so I really, really, um, pushed back against going down that route. And about five years ago, um, Christopher and I hired a director of ops, Mike, who's very technologically um, forward. And he kind of saw the writing on the wall, which is that, you know, five years ago, a lot of people were doing online ordering and apps, but not everybody. It wasn't like definite. And he said, I really think we should do this. And so we started exploring. What I've come to learn in the last five years as we've gone to kiosk ordering and app ordering and online is that the definition of hospitality has shifted. Um, Not for everybody, but it has broadened. And it means that sometimes people would rather not come to the counter and talk to a staff member, but maybe they would rather go to a kiosk because maybe they are in a rush and they need to get something really quick. Um, Maybe they're just not interested at that moment in engaging with somebody else, which is totally fine. And so for me, I've really changed my tune because for years I said, I'll never do this. But now I'm realizing that being hospitable and giving our guests a great experience is going to depend on that guest and different people want different things. And so, um, you know, we offer all of the different options and we let you choose how you want to experience flower. Yeah. So one thing I've always loved about flower is that it is very recognizable. Um, the, the taste, the vibe, uh, even the handwriting. Um, how do you take what's special about flower and flow it through these other channels, be them, be they digital or, or otherwise? We think a lot about that because we don't want to lose flower as we're being flower. Um, for example, we, uh, we just recently in the last year or so started creating pickup shelves for people. So if you do order in advance, again, for years, I said, no, I'm never going to do that. If you order in advance, you have to come up to the counter because then I want one of us to greet you and then, you know, find your order for you and hand it to you and say, thank you. And we just started realizing that that wasn't necessarily hospitable to some people. Some people really do just want to be able to come in and grab their thing and go. So we started um, pickup shelves, but we wanted to still make them flower. So what we said is that rather than just putting your order up with your name on it, we would 
create a sticker that's uh, in our font and kind of speaks to our logo, which is an, an egg, a cracked egg. Um, and then we'll make a little sticker that looks like the inside of an egg and write, hello, have a sweet day. And that way, and then leave an empty space so that we can write the guest name. And um, especially here downstairs, the team loves like decorating the stickers with different smiley faces. And, and so it's a nice way for us to keep that flower that's part of us, even though we're going this different route in terms of how we're giving that service. What do you see as the next big um, way that you're going to sell your products or, or connect with the world? So we're trying to do more um, shipping and more online um, ordering of things like through Williams-Sonoma uh, because we have found that people, you know, you can either come to flour or you can buy one of the cookbooks and you can bake flour, but some people can't do either of those. And so we want to be able to provide that through um, ordering online. Okay. And you mentioned the cookbook and uh, pastry love. I've got it right here. Uh, you also talk about in the introduction to this book about taking um, your recipes and sharing them with the world by letting us reconstruct them. Yes. Could you talk a little bit about um, what it's like to, to literally share your secret sauces here and, <laughs> um, and, and what it means as uh, that ability kind of goes out um, from your bakery and into everybody's kitchen? You know, Christopher is always teasing me. He says, why do you write all these books and share all of the secrets? And to me, they're not secrets at all. Um, if flour is all about making your life better, then if you can't physically come to the bakery, or if one of the things you love to do, even if you live in Boston, if you love being in a kitchen and taking flour and sugar and butter and eggs and creating an amazing pastry, then I want to be able to help you do that. And so for me, writing these recipes is another way that I can hopefully tap into your joy and delight of, of pastry and for many of us, it's eating it, but and for some people, it's making it. And so with the cookbooks, you can go into the kitchen and make something amazing and feel really proud of yourself and share it with people you love. Um, and that's another way of doing flour. And what do you, how do you hope your customers or your readers or your bakers interact with you once they've done that? I love when people share, uh, usually on Instagram. Sometimes people will email me or on Twitter when they've baked something. It's it honestly, it's so amazing. It's it, it's kind of weird. It's like the, they're not kids, but it feels like kids, the, the actual pastries. Somebody will post something and I'll be like, wow, I haven't even seen one of those yet. And someone will make something that I have tested, you know, numerous times in the book. And, you know, we had to make it again for the photo shoot, but I haven't seen it out in the wild. And so when somebody posts something that I have yet to see, I just feel like, wow, we just birthed a kid together, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's really fun to see everybody baking from the books. I love that. Um, you also talk about it. Uh, I think your publisher had suggested it would be your baking Bible. Correct. And you yeah. called it your yeah Bible. Your, your just baking journal seemed right. so formal to me. It's um, I don't feel I didn't want it to be something really formal. I didn't want it to be this big, heavy, serious book. And I really have always thought about um, from the first book, I thought about it as kind of sharing my baking journal. So with this one, when he said, I really think it's time for you to write a Bible, I just, again, I pushed back and I said, I don't think that's right. But the idea of sharing my journals, which is, I mean, it's like a scrap piece of paper with a recipe on it. It's an Excel sheet online. It's a couple pictures on Instagram, like that whole idea of compiling everything that I've gathered over the last I mean, honestly, this is stuff that's from the last decade. It's mostly stuff maybe in the last three or four years, but there's stuff from a decade ago. And taking all of those different elements and putting them together and sharing it with 
with the reader, um, to me, seemed it, it was more of a journal than a Bible. Okay. And you, you chronicle the evolution of some of your recipes, including your sticky bun syrup um, and different versions of that. Um, at first, I thought, you know, that's not something that can change. That's a signature moment right, at right. Flower. <laughs> um, and here it is uh, continuing to evolve. Yes. Um, how do you think of new foods and new recipes? And how do you come up with what's, with what's next on the menu? I don't think we think anything is static. I mean, we're always looking at everything. And as we're eating it, we're just thinking, gosh, could this be better? And, you know, the sticky bun for, I don't know, 18 years, we thought, no, it can't be better. Um, and then I've, I don't actually remember how the idea came up. But I think it's because every fall, we just start adding apple things to the menu, apple cake and apple brioche and apple pie. And and I think one day we just thought, wow, I wonder what this would taste like in a sticky bun. And so we just started playing around with that. Originally, we just threw some apples into the sticky buns and that was good. And then, I don't know, I think I started thinking if I take out some of the the liquid that's in this the goo, the part that makes it really sticky and replace it with apple cider and then maybe apple add some um, apple cider spices to the whole thing and maybe eliminate the nuts so you can really highlight the apples. And so that's kind of how that one evolved. Okay. And um, I feel like uh, you can't go to a restaurant or try to order a sandwich today um, without finding some kind of new ingredient, like a, like a plant-based protein on the menu. Um, I haven't seen one on any of the, the menus in a flower yet. Are you looking at, you know, alternative meats? Oh, you mean like Impossible Burger and Impossible all Beyond... That stuff? Beyond Meat. We talked about it probably about six months ago, maybe a year ago when it started to come up. We looked at the ingredient list and there were just a lot of things that we didn't, we didn't even know what those things were, which is very not like us. And so rather than using an alternative meat, we are, we are just continuing to do what we've always done, which is take foods that we love and make them taste as good as they can. And so we have a vegan sandwich, we have a vegan salad, um, we have a couple of vegan pastries, and but none of them are by doing any using any sort of uh, weird ingredient that we might not know how it came about. It's all using stuff that we know and just making it taste really excellent. And you know, I've always said that if we have a vegan item or a gluten free item or whatever you know item that is, that I want anybody who who eats it to enjoy it, and it's not just for vegan people. And so. We have a vegan muffin every quarter that if you are not vegan and you order it, you're not going to think, oh, gosh, I wonder what happened. I got the wrong muffin. You're just going to think, oh, wow, I had this great muffin. And then you might find out later that it's vegan. Okay. So nothing on the horizon there. No. Um, You mentioned uh, when we first started talking about uh, your concern for the environment. Um, How does that come to life in in a flower? Well, it's tough. Um, And I actually... Maybe this form will help spread the word. It's really challenging as a food business to figure out the whole recycling composting thing because the world, or the, at least here in Boston, everybody is talking about compostable, which I get and I want to do. The problem is, is that we offer compostable cutlery, compostable um, salad containers, all that stuff. We, we do as much as we can, and yet... Unless you put it in a compost bin, it doesn't compost. And so then you may as well be, it just goes into the landfill. The other issue is that in New England, uh, compostable items tend not to compost because we don't have uh, the, the climate for it. And so a lot of places, 
that say that they're composting things are not. And so we've been looking really hard to try to figure out how we can minimize our uh, environmental impact. And one thing that we've found is a company that takes compost trash and recyclables, but then can actually take the plastic recycling and create a slurry that then becomes energy. So it's one of those things that you hear about and you think, what? You know, that sounds a little crazy, but we actually went to the plant and we watched it all happen. Um, But it's going to be a shift in educating our customers because so many of the guests walk in and they see, oh, what great, it's compostable cutlery and they're doing the right thing. And I want to tell each and every one of them, unless you go home and take that and put it in a compost bin, it's not doing the right thing. And so ideally, if we can go to all recyclables and then have them use this company, which we will do, then that will be the best impact for the environment. But it's it's a it's a really crazy system right now that people don't really understand. And everyone's trying to do the right thing, but there's not enough information out there. Sure. And, and I could imagine, you know, we're talking about uh, uh, trash recycling, compostable slurries and recycling plants. And suddenly we're very far away from your, the baking exactly. table. Um, how do you make sense of all of this as you're, as you're growing your business? I mean, I, I know that as we get bigger, that my role and our role as business leaders, um, I mean, we always will stick to the missions of making great food and offering great service for our guests. But I know that, that, at this point, we have a really strong network of managers who we entrust with that mission, with those goals, and that our goal, me and Christopher and Mike, that we really are trying to look forward to see how we can continue to make the business better. And that doesn't always mean how to make the croissant flakier. Sometimes it means how do we recycle better or you know, how do we deal with uh, minimum wage increases and et cetera, et cetera. And as you look ahead to scaling um or or even just these nine restaurants and making sure that we're putting out great you know flaky croissant um what are the biggest challenges you see ahead uh we we have noticed and we feel we'll continue to notice that labor has been really challenging just trying to find i mean everybody knows the economy is really strong right now and the unemployment rate is really low um and trying to find people who want to, it's a really tough business. And so trying to find people who really want to be in this business, it's getting more and more challenging. So I think as we scale, that's something we're always thinking about. How can we continue to do what we do? And maybe with fewer people, not that we'd ever eliminate people, but we need to, we need to streamline a little bit because it's such a labor heavy model. Like Mm -hmm. everything depends on people except for recently, like you said, the kiosk, we introduced a kiosk that's not meant to take somebody's place. It's meant to help us grow without having to hire another person because we can't find that person. That's right. Maybe one last question. You've been great with all of these questions. And now I have a really hard one Uh for you. The cauliflower melt. (laughs) Where did it go? And when is it coming back? So the cauliflower melt, um, we've heard a huge uproar on people who have who are disappointed to see it gone. We have replaced it with the mushroom melt. Have you tried the mushroom have, melt? Do you I like have. the mushroom melt? You know, I think it had the right bit of umami. I like it better yeah. um, when I asked to put a little bit of hot sauce on Ooh, it. Oh, yes, I like that idea. I would put hot sauce on everything. But not every guest likes everything spicy, so sometimes we have to scale back. Um, so we always say when we take something off the menu that we have to replace it with something that tastes as good or better or else people will be upset. And so we really worked hard on the mushroom melt 
so that we got it to the point where we felt like it tasted better. Obviously, you know, different people have different tastes. Um, the cauliflower melt will be back. Um, we're going to wait until, so this is, uh, the mushroom melt is on our winter menu and the cauliflower melt will come back on the spring menu. Okay. Yes. Well, you have a group here looking forward to that. Um, but it is a it is a, a question that we we have seen, you know, with many of our clients out in the industry. Um, it's really hard to take something off the menu it that is. people love, and it leads to these large menus and and large They're infrastructures to support and them. Inefficient and exactly, exactly. So, how do you say goodbye to something that you've put enough pastry love into to get up on the menu? Well, I, I mean, we do try to pick things that we think aren't selling well. Not that the cauliflower, I mean, the cauliflower amount was selling great, um, but we wanted to, uh, sometimes it's it's our chef's imaginations. They come up with something and they're like, oh my gosh, I really want to, tr- you know, I had this great mushroom thing somewhere and I want to try to replicate it for flour. So then we have to take something off in order to add. And so, like I said, we try to make sure that whatever we're replacing is better than, at least, if not as good as better than so hopefully then people won't get so upset so there's so the cauliflower mount for example took the place of um i'm not going to remember but some grilled maybe the grilled portobello melt or something and people were upset but then they grew to love the cauliflower mount so you know right now everybody's upset about losing cauliflower mount but maybe in a couple months everyone will love the mushroom and then maybe if we bring back cauliflower everyone's going to be saying where's the mushroom melt that's right. I don't know. And if they're upset, it means they're paying attention. So you're doing something <laughs> right. Um, and uh, hopefully this and others will be enshrined um, in your next book. Yes, absolutely. All right. Um, well, Joanne, thank you so much for, for coming in. It's My been pleasure. A, it's been a pleasure. Um, and I look forward to seeing you downstairs at Flower. Thank you so much. EPAM Continuum integrates business, experience, and technology consulting, focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. At EPAM Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Thanks to Joanne Chang and Buck Sleeper for their great conversation today. Cheers to Kip Palalis, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. Numerous appreciations to Ken Gordon, our producer, for all of his masterminding behind the scenes. I'm your host, Pete Chapin. I'm heading downstairs for a flaky croissant from Flower right now. And to our listeners, we thank you for your ears. Mm-hmm.